0: Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Our guest today is Vincenzo La Rufa, president of Aquiline Capital Partners and head of their financial technology group. Aquiline was founded in 2005 and is a private investment firm focused on business across the financial sector with almost $6 billion in assets under management. Vincenzo is also a proud alum of our amazing Wharton and Penn School. We talked about Vincenzo's career path, fintech trends and exciting opportunities, their approach to partnering with entrepreneurs, stories and case studies from some of their exciting portfolio companies, challenges as an investor during COVID, identifying fintech opportunities in a fast-moving and fast-changing market, and why he still loves the magic of reading physical books. Now join me in a great interview with Vincenzo Larufa. Vincenzo, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Uh, Welcome back home, I should say, because we do have an alum joining us. And perhaps we could get started by hearing a bit about yourself and your background and the road that took you to your current role.
1: Sure. I'm really delighted to be doing this with you and reconnect with Wharton. Yeah, so I was a college and Wharton undergrad at Penn. I uh, studied classics. I read Latin and Greek and got a finance degree. I was very briefly a pretty uninspired investment banker. I was a a not very successful investment banking analyst that uh, did that for a little while, found my way to venture capital, which I really got excited about. I started life mostly as a sourcer, finding deals actually in a space that had nothing to do with fintech. I started in, I guess today, what they call clean technology. Back then, we called energy technology, in a small fund in Philadelphia. Um, From there, I met a friend of mine that we would go on together to find a group called Susquehanna Growth Equity. I helped him found that. And that's really where I got my start in fintech. And so that was really, it was, we wrote the plan in 2005 and joined in 2006 and started doing a number of deals and payments and capital markets technology, really growth equity and venture deals. And back then we were running checks, five, 10, 15, $20 million. Had a lot of success there. Really proud of what we built there. I left there and, and connected with Jeff Greenberg at Aquiline, And at the time I was starting my own fund and Jeff and I hit it off. I think we had a, a shared vision. Acoline had a tremendous reputation as a financial services private equity fund. They wanted to go deeper into technology Had already done some tech deals. And I think we just got excited about what we both wanted to do together. That was, I guess, almost eight years ago now. So I joined initially to head the financial technology group, which I do, and, and also uh, run the firm with them now.
0: So you got started in a different segment as an investor. Why make the switch? Why specifically payments and, and fintech? I mean, it's a, it's a huge landscape out there.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. At, at the time, fintech sort of wasn't as cool or well-known, which probably made it, made it easier to, to make money. It's quite glamorous now. There's a lot of people looking at it. I thought energy tech was, was interesting. I liked being a specialist. My real passion was getting into a community, really understanding that community as deeply as you could, which is hard as an investor, because you're not living it every day, but really get to know the people, get to understand the problems. I love doing that in energy. But when I started learning about sort of the problems of financial services and, and just saw the opportunity, I got really excited. Financial services is such a wonderful landscape. It's full of extraordinarily talented people. And the kind of things you can get involved with, it has this massive force multiplier. effect. So very, very small changes can make profound differences, right? If you figure out how to clear a stock trade for a penny less, or, you know, you figure out how to lower the cost of custodying some asset management account or you, know, you lower the interchange costs and pay. You know, all these things, very, very small changes have huge impacts on the system. Very, very small changes can have huge impact on people's outcomes. And so I got very excited about that.
0: No, that makes sense. And, and you know, we do get a, a good number of investors that join us on the show, but not all of them have been investing for just over 15 years or, or more, right? So you've had a front row seat to the evolution of this fast-moving, fast-evolving industry, I think you have—you uh, can share some great stories as to how have you observed this evolution, and also what are some of those trends that that you're seeing going
1: forward? It's a great question. I, mean, I think that one of the things I think really helps the space mature. Or one of the things that maybe gives it a lot more energy is repeat entrepreneurs. Right, and so I think that one of the most profound changes that have happened in fintech over the past, call it ten or fifteen years, is the second and third and fourth time entrepreneurs that because of the scars on their backs and what they know and and their credibility, you know, taking all that friction out of the system. I think the velocity of deals, the velocity of how deals can grow and develop, is just very very different. And it's interesting because I think in some ways we're watching that story play out again in insure tech, which as one of the niches of fintech, probably has taken longer to develop, but over the past five, 10 years has really started to come into its own. And so, you know, kind of following the same exact trend. I think also just the buying community, the acquiring community, those large incumbents have been rewarded in the public markets for really, really smart and relatively frequent MA. And I think that in itself has created a big dynamo. And I think when you think about the issues facing the industry, the industry has probably benefited from some vendor consolidation, putting those pieces together, having sort of a fuller stack. And every time that some new company finds a solution, it's a little bit better, it's easy to see how the economics of that work for a large incumbent to want to acquire that and pull that in. And so like all those things that kind of make for any good venture and private equity ecosystem, I think that has just gone extraordinarily well and fast over the past few years.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like, you work closely with, obviously, with your entrepreneurs, people in, in mm-hmm. your space. Like, What are some of those traits that you love to see in, a, in an entrepreneur that you're considering investing in?
1: Aquiline, we do a lot of things around financial services and tech. So, so we have a private equity fund, a venture fund, and especially credits or opportunities fund. And you, know, you kind of look for different things in different parts of uh, different parts of the forest. The skills, somewhat axiomatic, but I mean, the skills... That make you a really great early stage leader are really different in a lot of ways from somebody who is managing more established business, a turnaround situation. I think we're one of the few firms in the world that really kind of look at such a broad base of the fintech landscape, and we invest in companies from pre-revenue to several hundred millions in revenue, in U.S., U.K., continental Europe. We've done deals in Asia, and so you know when you look at that in, in all those areas, you're looking for different things. Ultimately, though. The, the what's shared is you're looking for people that are incredibly passionate, incredibly transparent, and see you as a partner. You know, and I, th- there's a lot of money out there. One of the things that, we're, that we are really passionate about is we want to be a really good partner to our companies. We want to be a really good partner to our entrepreneurs and to our executives. And that's kind of a two-way street that those folks need to want to value you as a partner. And so that's the real connection that I think we're looking for. There's so many really, really brilliant people out there. There's there's lots of hardworking people out there, but you can find people where you can really meld in partnership to build something. Because look, we think at Actline we have a lot to offer these companies through our relationships and kind of the deeper insight because we are a specialist. You want to find people that really want to lock into that and value that.
0: No, that makes absolute sense. And I guess it's a good segue to my next question. I mean, we're talking I mean it, it's hard to say, but it, 10 months after the pandemic got started, or more, more than that,' say close to a year, and obviously, all the fintech companies as well as the rest of the world have been affected, and a lot of them have had to rely on their partners, right? It, be it investors, mentors or even clients. Tell us about your experience navigating 2020 and, and the pandemic, and how have you navigated this along with your uh, portfolio companies?
1: Yeah, I think you probably hear this all the time. I think people were pleasantly surprised at how the technology, people flipped into a a technology mode for communicating. It's worked well, nothing replaces in-person and the relationships of of being in-person and just that human experience. But what I would say is Jeff Greenberg and I were incredibly focused, I think early on in the whole way, that Ackline is very focused on our community, of our investors, of our companies, of our employees, and what are we doing to kind of make them feel like they're part of something? Like, how do you keep that cartilage? How do you keep all that that you get when you're physically in person? And so, what have we done? You know, I don't know if there's been any magic bullet, but but what I would say is we certainly ramped up the communication, and I think that it's easy, particularly in a private equity or venture seat, to always make that communication a information sharing cadence. But the better call is the "How are you doing?" You know We try to have as many across all those individuals, all those constituencies, like, how are you doing? Doing okay? You need some help? You know you need to vent. you mad at us about something. Like, we're, I think we're just trying to have a little bit more of that. You know you mad at somebody else. You know, is there something else we can be doing? How can we support you differently? You know, if it's possible, can we go meet somewhere outside? Like you know, I think that sort of stuff. You know, along with obviously, we gotta get the numbers back. We gotta know what the business is doing. But trying to just keep those sort of human interactions that, in these environments, you just sort of have to tell yourself to keep doing because you don't think about it because you're staring at a screen every day. But I think if you create that, and we do some different events or find some ways to kind of pull our companies together with each other, I think if you kind of do those things, it just makes us all more bearable. And if you feel like you're in it together, I don't know. There's a great esprit de corps that comes with that.
0: Now, are there specific fintech verticals or, or, or sectors that you know, have become perhaps more attractive for investors in, in the wake of the crisis?
1: I think a lot of people realize this. I think that a couple of phenomenon, one, certainly in, from a consumer standpoint, there's obviously been sort of a, that those folks that have moved online, a huge chunk of those have been forced to move online. I think enterprise software adoption by FIG obviously hit the gas. And if you think what we do is we invest in pure financial services, we invest in fintech, we invest in enterprise software and business services, where financial services is a component or a customer. We certainly have seen that. I think that the certainly the compliance aspect of financial services, think about what a radical change had to happen just to pick one area, just pick trading and capital markets. But basically overnight, things that were verboden you know, six months ago or, or a day ago, people having to trade from home, you know, those kind of things, people had to adjust to incredibly fast. And so there's kind of different ways of doing things. And I actually, I give the industry an enormous amount of credit for having that flexibility. And I think we see this in lots of industries. I think financial services has comported itself quite well, um, given the environment, not perfectly, but quite well. And that is definitely, you know, I think compliance gets a big boost. I think the acceleration of of sort of tech-enabled services. So a huge theme for us is really that some problems, SaaS makes a lot of sense. We think a lot of problems in big enterprise financial services, it more should be a wrapped services and technology solution. I think that acceleration of either BPOing those problems or otherwise, just getting those resources into a third party, we're seeing an acceleration of those types of deals, not a deceleration in this environment. The other thing that's interesting is, I think that from an incumbent standpoint, the amount of divestitures and reshaping that they've done under this period. I don't know if I would have guessed that. That's actually increased. And I think the partnership, I think that the partnership with private equity in particular for some of these companies, I mean, there's probably some of the best and most interesting conversations I've had with large incumbents in financial services, asset management, insurance, et cetera. I think there's actually been a, an increasing willingness to, to look at creative things together. Yeah,
0: no, that's super interesting. And are you, it sounds like you are optimistic for, the state of fintech, state of fintech investing for 2021 and, and beyond? Because you, you mentioned you also invest around the world, right? Are there certain regions that you're paying uh, special attention
1: to? I'm very optimistic. I, I love the industry. I, I love the community. The great thing about it is, if you take a look at what, at what technology companies have done to change the economics of the industry for the good, up and down the stack from the consumer all the way up, in, in any of the verticals. Asset management, insurance bank, et cetera. I think it's been profound. The good news is that there, there's still so much left. I mean, there's, you know, kind of, you just keep kind of going. A lot of it's down the stack. Some of it's continuing to change consumer experience. There's so much left to do. And again, if you combine how much is left in it, or think about areas, you know, payments has gone through a massive technology transformation. There's still things to do. There's obviously still migrations to happen, but areas of like insurance and core banking, there's so much left. We're sort of the earliest innings of those things. And you see the cross pollination between fintech executives that have been successful in one area of the financial parts moving over and you see an extraordinary phenomenon of fintech entrepreneurs that have moved into insurtech and i think that's really really interesting in terms of geography I mean, aquiline has been particularly active in, in the uk almost since our inception we have an office in london uh, the uk market's been a fantastic market for us and we've done deals in the uk ireland denmark france i'm a big believer a lot of what we do, we do in not traditional venture and private equity geographies. We like those. We think that there's you know, certainly the democratization of technology talents, a powerful thing. It's happening in the continental U.S., but it's happening in the continent. I think continental Europe, I see us doing a lot more there. I mean, you just see these pockets of really extraordinary activity. And if you think about where our companies have planted their flags, lots of companies in London, other major cities, but the numbers of offices that we have in places like Poland or, or other geographies in Central and Eastern Europe or you know, the offices that we plan in Asia. I mean, these companies, financial services is most of the time inherently international, especially if you're a service provider to large financial services. And so I just think that will continue to pollinate more activity. You know, as a firm, we pride ourselves that we see 10,000 plus deals a year across all of our products. And that could be anything from just having an initial conversation or hearing about a deal to a full actual process but we constantly are seeing that community just repopulate. We're constantly seeing people reassemble into new and interesting businesses. But I would expect us to continue to be more active globally.
0: You've mentioned some amazing markets and sounds like you guys have some very interesting companies. Are there perhaps uh, one or two of the companies you could tell us about?
1: We have companies that do all sorts of things in the financial services landscape and to focus on I think a company that I think is a really good story, if that's helpful and I think indicative of what we do, we were investors in a company called Virtus Partners, a company we invested in guess, six years ago now. And what I loved about Virtus Partners was there's was a group of executives that had left a bank that they, they were providing administrative services for credit funds and for CLOs, pretty complicated space. And they left and they had an idea that they could just do this better from a blank sheet of paper. And they went out, and made very little money, and started just building a solution. Just great entrepreneurial story. And they had built it up. They had gotten really marquee customers in their space. When I joined Aquiline, it's funny, it was actually my first call the first day I joined. because so I'd known the company and thought so highly of them. And you know, we had the opportunity to become an investor. And if you think about a company that taking what was really a fairly manual service, and just living with them on the tech journey. So a company that sort of had, like Ryan's service was really well, we care a lot about our customers, but we're going to continue to develop that technology as we go and to be a part of that in obviously a sector that was very, very important and the credit markets, the macro behind that, incredibly important. But then the increasing compliance and those, all the things that sort of have to do with administrative and processing services, which is an area where Acoiline's been very busy across our history. They just built a really important business that delivered an incredible amount of value to that market. The business was sold to FIS, and and I think it's a real landmark transaction in that space in terms of what it meant for the technology development of that state space and the service of that space. And it was a great partnership. It's a great
0: example of one of those, uh, quote-unquote, boring companies yeah. that are serving a massive space. The consumer doesn't see it, but I'm guessing this company is now huge.
1: I love boring fintech. I don't find it very boring. If my partner... Uh, Max, she was on who, who heads our venture fund, uh, Acolyte Technology Growth. He's in much more high profile sort of front and center investments that are changing the industry in a different way. And I think that we kind of found different opportunities across the universe in that regard. But I think if you're really intimate, you know, if you spend a lot of time, if you overweight your time with incumbents, which we do, and I think we, we love, because we want to be that trusted partner, you're just going to find really interesting problems to go figure out. You're going to find that's a really interesting, idiosyncratic, often back-office, not always problem, to figure out together. And again, I think there's a lot of trust that goes into that. When people are talking about their problems, they got to trust you to be candid. But I think that's how we found some of our best opportunities.
0: Yeah. And and I'm guessing also, by being a good partner to existing entrepreneurs, they themselves send you deal flow right? of people they see they are getting started.
1: It's the truth, man. I, uh, we certainly try to be good guys. I think that we have some wonderful relationships with our current and former executives and entrepreneurs. These kind of businesses, things are going to go well. They're not going to go well. You're going to fight sometimes. You're going to hug it out. Like, you know, it's a journey. But if the entrepreneurs executives believe that you're a good guy and believe that you genuinely care about them, you know, that's something you can't think. If you genuinely care about each other trying to go make something happen, you can have differences and figure them out. We've been fortunate to several times back prior executives, which I think is just a real testament to the relationships. And they have, you know, we get deal flow from that community continuously. And it's obviously, those are some of the best deals. You're going to have some of your highest batting average in terms of getting stuff done. when you get that warm introduction or those folks already know how we operate. They know it's a fit. So for sure.
0: And uh, talking about the future and, and the road ahead, how do you envision the next few years or the next chapter of
1: your team and and Aquiline? It's a great question. It's a hard environment to be prognosticating. The world can go in lots of different directions. (laughs) The way I sort of see it, I think we ourselves are at our best when the different groups that we have are all sort of collaborating, when our knowledge transfers the best, again, harder in a Zoom environment. You know, We have, like most firms, a big firm meeting every week, try to talk about ideas and have things banging around things or getting that spark I'm a big believer in just sort of the raw amount of activities and ideas you're going to make it you get lucky by having a volume to create luck <laughs> and there's sort of this thing where if you have more really high quality folks running around looking at problems it just kind of creates its own spark benefit
0: best um, way i've I've heard it is
1: uh, to expand the surface area of luck right. yeah I like that I like that um, that's much more uh, elegant than uh, elegantly put than I did but I see more of that. I see we want to keep doing what we're doing, which is be a trusted partner in the financial services and technology landscape and really interesting adjacencies that affect that in landscape. If you think about, I think about our universe as financial services as product or financial services as customer. That's a huge, huge part of the economy. And we, we do things in healthcare, we do things in legal services because it fits that dimension. And so and I think we'll continue to find those adjacencies that really resonate with our core community. Of investors and partners, et cetera. So I think we grow our footprint, you know, grow our presence. I don't know if I see that we're going to do anything else radically different. I think over time, we'll probably look to do more things in Asia directly or indirectly. We see terrific opportunities and across a number of those markets. I think in the more near term, there's so much still to do right where we are. Uh, there's so much to do in the US and the continent, in the UK and Ireland where we've had success before. So I think just finding ways to expand that presence. You know, wh- one of the things that we We do do, that's a little different than other private equity firms. We have a pretty robust analyst program. So we hire right out of undergrad, typically four to seven folks. We have an intern program and the vitality that that gives us, I think the energy that that gives us. And as those people matriculate through the firm, I think we're seeing, we've been doing it now probably for four years or so. And just seeing how that's changing us and having that lifeblood in the firm which I recommend for everybody. I just, it's a wonderful thing for our firm. But in some ways, they're obviously a huge part in, you know, it doesn't take you that long in private equity and venture to have an impact. And I think it's one of the people, I think it's one of the reasons people get excited to join the industry, right? Four or five, six years out, I, I was on my, my first board 26 years old. There are few industries that give you that sort of opportunity. And so if you have those folks in your firm and you see how, you're going to see how that's going to change you and expand you. And so it also makes it less predictable, which I think is fun.
0: And on the topic of, uh, I guess, universities, you now we do have a, a Wharton alum here and this is a Wharton show. Any highlights from your days at Wharton?
1: I think awfully fondly about Penn and Wharton. I, I just had an incredible experience. I think there were a few places in the world where I could have did what I did academically. I loved classics, actually still a big part of my, my life. My kids go to a classical school. But then to do that and do that with Wharton and the rigor there was just tremendous. I mean, I just think the infrastructure and resources at Penn, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't want to sound like an advertisement, but I just think it's a really special thing. There's just a critical mass of really, really interesting things going on. And I'm the world's biggest Philadelphia bull. So I think, you know, doing it in Philadelphia is, is special as well. And I a great experience. I friends from my class there. And, you know, it's funny, I I was not one of these kids that went to college having much of an idea of what I wanted to do. I still didn't think I'd go into banking or finance. I'm delighted that I did. I, I could not imagine enjoying what I do more. I absolutely love what I do. And all those seeds were planted at, at Penn and Warden. Or oh, this whole show is an, is an advertiser. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and speaking of classics, I see a lot of books behind yeah. you. You clearly like to
1: read. Uh, <laughs> any favorites from back there? Yeah, I am. I am um, a huge believer... I read very few business books, virtually none. And I, I, you know, I, as my colleagues will tell you, when I interview people, um, nobody gets by me without hearing favorite book and favorite movie. And uh, I read a lot of, of 19th and 20th century British fiction. I read a lot of philosophy and theology, a, a lot of history. And you know, my favorite authors, uh, Evelyn Wall. I've kind of read everything by Evelyn Wall, but I've been trying to do some different things. I, I probably broke my rule and read a few different books that kind of verge on business books. I guess I've read some histories of some financial services, partnerships and the like, which are great reads, are, you know, on their own. But I, uh, I just, um, I think the job is the best. I think the job is the best. when you are just collaborating with, with really intellectually curious folks and sort of the job is all of one piece. People are bringing a lot of different things to the table. And so like, like I always encourage people, I work with like, you should be reading really good fiction you should be reading really good stuff just out of your field, you're just going to fire the synapses in different ways. And you're going to be able to bring more things to the party.
0: I love it. It's true. As I say, leaders are readers. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I also just find it if I can't read during the day, I, I think I'm just a better person if I have enough time during the day to just read. Outstanding. Well, I love physical books. <laughs> As you can well, tell, I can believer. see that. I can I'm see a that. huge believer in physical books.
0: But Jess, so Thank you so much for joining us. Really a treat to have you here. And now that I know that you're in Philly, once things go back to normal, I'll make sure that probably not me because I'm graduating, but the next generation invites you over
1: to campus. I would love that. I really, really enjoy this, Miguel. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wartime Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Warton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.